This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, podcast fans, what's going on? How you doing? What's up? Welcome to episode 133 of the Analytics podcast presented by Pulse Cellular. Today is Tuesday, July 9th. Thank you, as always, for listening, for downloading. If you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, please go ahead and do so right now. Before we get into today's show, I kind of want to give an apology to our listeners, to our fans out there. Did not have a podcast last week. No notice was not announced. I apologize for that. Quick story. What happened was I traveled from my current hometown of Bradenton, Florida, to my hometown of Buffalo, New York. Didn't have a lot of notice. I flirted with it for a few days. Finally pulled the trigger. I had an opportunity to go to Buffalo for five days. And long story short, I hastily packed all my podcasting gear, my mobile gear with me, grabbed my mics, my wires, thought I had everything, got to Buffalo, realized I did not have my digital recorder. So I couldn't do any interviews. So no interviews. No shows last week. It really sucked because besides going to Buffalo to see family and friends, which is always fun, and of course, chicken wings, which everyone who knows me knows I am in love with Buffalo chicken wings. I was really looking forward to doing a couple shows in Buffalo. Having a couple live shows, interviewing people at restaurants, wing spots in Buffalo, which I try to do often anyway when I get back to Buffalo. So did not get to have an episode. That won't happen again because even worst case scenario, I should have a couple best of episodes in a can. Did that last month or so. I knew I was going to be off for a week, so I did a few best of episodes. I just throw out a quick intro, and then I basically replay an interview with one of my favorite guests from a past episode. So again, sorry for everyone that I was not with you last week. Won't happen again. As for today's show, I'm going to make up for it, man, because I got a good one. Former Buffalo Bills offensive lineman, Marcus Sullivan is going to join me. He's going to be my guest today. We're going to talk about his life, his career, his Buffalo Bills career. Also, very strong, passionate feelings about the city of Buffalo, Western New York in general. Kind of made headlines. He had some comments on Twitter. A couple of local Buffalo media outlets picked up on it. We're going to discuss that plenty more. Also on today's episode, I got my man Jeff Boyd back with me. We're going to do another installment of the Big Boy Theory. Today, we're going to talk Buffalo Sabres. They've made a couple moves since we last had an episode out there. I'll get his take on a couple things involving the Sabres. Also, 
a Seinfeld update. I'm up to season seven now of my first time ever binge of the show. Jeff's a big fan of Seinfeld, so we'll discuss that. I'm going to get his Mount Rushmore of TV theme songs. And then we'll talk a little bit about Buffalo, my trip to Buffalo, some of the chicken wings that I had. Of course, my power rankings are kind of a big thing. And unfortunately, maybe unfortunately anyway, for me, my takes on chicken wings get more traction these days on Twitter and Facebook and social media in my sports takes too. Oh, whatever, man. It's all good. So anyway, very good episode coming up. Lots to get to packed. Not going to waste any more time here at the top. Let's just get right into it. First up, here's my interview with former Buffalo Bill Marcus Sullivan, followed immediately by another installment of The Big Boy Theory. All right, my guest today was a former All-American at Fenwick High School, a college football star at Illinois, and a former offensive lineman with the Buffalo Bills. I am talking about Marcus Sullivan. What's going on, Marcus? How you doing? I'm doing very well. I appreciate you having me on your your podcast. Oh, I appreciate you coming on, man. I've been blessed to have a lot of former Buffalo Bills on the show. You know what, too, by the way, it always seems like the offensive linemen are always the guys that are willing to do the show. I've had you on, Eric Wood a couple times, Craig Urbic, Will Wolford. It's like all the old line guys, man. You like you like to talk, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, man, we're highly accessible. You know, we didn't have any stats or anything like that. So <laughs> we, we love talking to guys like you, you know, it gives us a little shine, you know. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. So let's kind of go back to the beginning a little bit before we talk about your time with the Bills. You grew up in Chicago, near Chicago. I'm assuming you're a Chicago Bears fan. Who are a few of your favorite players and a few of your teams, if you had any other teams besides the Bears? Well, it's funny that you ask that. Um, I was actually a Buffalo Bills fan when I was a kid. Really? Yeah, and I'm certainly not saying this just because I'm on your show. I actually was a Buffalo Bills fan, you know, especially like uh, the late 80s all the way up until that, you know, the fourth Super Bowl run. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man, I mean, I-, I begged my parents to find me a, a Buffalo Bills starter uh, jacket and a hat. You know how big starter was back in the day. Sure, sure. Oh yeah, man. <laughs> but uh, man, I, uh, I mean, I love rocking that Buffalo Bills uh, starter jacket and hat, man. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I absolutely love those teams. You know, from the early '90s, and um, you know, I was a huge fan. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, I was certainly a Bears fan. You know, uh, in my young, young years. You know, back in the early '80s. You know, but I was, you know, I was five, six years old back then, you know, when I really started to fall in love with football, you know, it was Notre Dame football and it was uh, Buffalo Bills, you know, when I really started to kind of understand the game, you know, so, but yeah, man, I was a Buffalo Bills fan. Yeah, and you're right at that age, you're right at that right age where you would grow up a fan of the Bills when they're actually, you know, when they were a very good football team for younger Bills fans now over the last, you know, 15 or so years. That wouldn't be the case. But in your case, yeah, the Bills were good when you were young. When did you first start playing football? I didn't start playing football until I was 14. So when I entered into high school. So I I played basketball. You know, I was fairly tall, um, you know, growing up, obviously. Um, But I started playing football when I was in high school, when I was 14. Wow. When did you first start to realize that you were more talented at football than the average player. I mean, you go on to college, and we'll talk about all this in a few in the NFL and stuff like that. There had to be an age, and if, in your case, that you didn't even start playing until you were in high school. It had to happen relatively yeah. early on, but did you kind of realize right away that you were 
if you didn't start to that age, you must have been a natural, you know, to end up being as recruited like you were and stuff like that. Must have came for you yeah. pretty quick. Not saying football's easy and natural because it's certainly not, but for you in your case, you must have picked it up pretty easily and pretty naturally to to just jump into a sport at that age and be pretty good at it right away. Yeah, man, I'll tell you what, basketball really helped, you know, just as far as the athleticism part and the, you know, the good footwork. But, uh, you know, I guess I started to kind of learn that this was probably my calling, you know, athletically, you know, when I uh, was a sophomore in high school. So, you know, I was going to my sophomore year. Uh, the varsity coaches started to talk to me about moving up to varsity. I was scared as heck, you know, just being a 15, 16-year-old playing on the varsity level. And, you know, my high school is, a, you know, a pretty good football program, mm-hmm. especially one of the best football uh, leagues in the United States. You know, so they moved me up to varsity that, that summertime of my uh, sophomore year. And, uh, you know, I did okay. You know, certainly, uh, you know, I had a lot to learn. I certainly got my butt kicked by, you know, some, uh, you know, the older guys. But, you know, I, I held my own. And, uh, you know, I really, you know, started to really uh, understand that, you know, this may be something that uh, could go further, uh, you know, uh, outside of high school. Now, you in high school, you also... I read that you were into wrestling and bowling as well. What got you into wrestling and bowling? Man, I'll tell you what. Um, you know, it, it's kind of natural that football players, especially linemen, kind of, you know, gravitate towards wrestling right, right after football, you know. Um, I wanted to play basketball, but, you know, and that, that was always my first love. But I figure, I figure that football was kind of my ticket. And, you know, a lot of the older guys and the coaches were telling me that wrestling would, would you know, would definitely help with football. So I, I wasn't a stubborn kid, you know, so I, I didn't, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, listen to my uh, immature self. You know, I, I kind of listened to older folks and, you know, they kind of told me that this is probably what you need to do. Then I did it, you know, because I wanted to get better. You know, I wanted to excel at what I was doing. You know, I never played the game, uh, you know, to to be a division one athlete and NFL player ever, you know, I just wanted to be the best player I can be, you know? So I took it in stride and, you know, I play, I wrestled and I did that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't wrestle my entire uh, high school year, but, uh, you know, I did a few years to kind of learn the movements and it certainly helped with, uh, you know, conditioning. Sure. And, um, you know, in the springtime, that's when bowling rolls around and I didn't really want to do shot put, you know, kind of want to do something that, um, I really didn't have a uh, desire or love for kind of shot put, but I always loved uh, bowling. You know, me and my dad used to go bowling all the time when we were when I was a kid, and uh, you know, I, I developed a love for it. So, you know, I was I was the absolute worst bowler on, on the team, but I loved I loved it. <laughs> you know, I was averaging yeah, about a one sixty, and some had a really good bowling team back in the day. You know, I was about a 160. I was like the low man on the totem pole. But that 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 also humbled me. You know, it, it showed me, hey man, you're not the you're not the best in this sport. You know, you got some guys that are way better than you, and uh, that that humbled me. You know, and it, and it, it really helped just as far as my development. Sure, man. Now you become an all state and a parade all American lineman. You're one of the most recruited linemen in the country at the time. Let me ask you this: as a teenager, you're getting all that attention. Can it be a little difficult at times, as a kid anyway, to keep your ego in check? You know, maybe you're not thinking of it that way, but quite literally, in your case, you're the big man on campus at that point getting recruited. Can that be tough for a kid when they're your age to be able to 
keep your ego in check. You know what I'm saying? You know what? I mean, I, I don't think I had an issue with that. You know, I was always a humble uh, individual. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess I was kind of lucky with that regard because we also had Corey McGetty in my high school, you know, and he was a big time uh, basketball player. Ended up playing 15 years in the NBA. Oh, yeah, I remember. And, you know, a lot of the attention kind of went to him, you know. So, and that also humbled me as well. It's, it's like, you know, yeah, I'm the, I was, you know, coming into my senior year, I was the number one ranked offensive lineman in the country. But, I mean, Corey was, you know, was, was God <laughs> in Chicago back then. Yeah. You know, he was 16 years old and had a body of a 25-year-old, you know. So, um, you know, me and him were good friends. You know, I, I tried to you know, mentioned him as much as I could, you know, but I was still trying to figure myself out as well, you know, but uh, that, that, that kind of helped me just as far as, you know, not getting arrogant about my situation, I guess. <laughs> how, how different was recruiting back in your day as opposed to today, whereas today it's like, it, they don't even, scouts don't even necessarily have to come out to see you because of huddle and social media, Twitter, stuff like that. People get themselves out there, but back when you're there, not that it was that long ago, but you know what I'm saying? Like, coach, Everyone had to fly out. They had to come out to see you. It was just a different type of recruiting era and a different method of recruiting back then as opposed to today, like which is probably, what, 15 to 20 it's, years it's, since you were in school? Yeah, sure. It's night and day. It's complete night and day, you know? I mean, uh, I, I guess I'd be equivalent to like a five-star recruit, um, you know, ESPN. I was ranked number 16 in the country yeah. um, back in the day. Like, Street and Smith was like the, the number one publication to, to rank players. Right. Back in the day, and also a parade magazine. You know, if you were in that, you were considered a blue chip. You know, but it was—it really wasn't. Uh, I don't want to say it wasn't a big deal because it was, but it's it's night and day. I mean, it's it's exploded. You know, nowadays. You know, so and that that's great for the kids. You know, I'm happy that they're able to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, live their dreams and you know. But I, I certainly don't want these kids to get that stuff to their head because. And once they get their college campus, they're, they're, they're just another guy, you know. Right. So I know a lot of them kind of take it in, hopefully a lot of them take it in stride and understand that. But, you know, if you're going to kind of live your whole life, uh, you know, as the, you know, oh, I'm a five-star or I'm a, you know, Texas or Oklahoma commit, you know, they, 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 that's not a really a, a mentality to have, you know, because – these these twenty one, twenty two, and twenty three year old guys would definitely, um, you know, humble you sure. that first week you're on campus. <laughs> then now that had, that certainly has not changed, you know, just oh, as right. far as that, you know, just as far as that uh, welcome to NCAA Division One football kind of, uh, you know, a process that they go through. That hasn't changed at all, but right. certainly the high school recruiting has changed. Sure. Now you chose Illinois. Why did you choose to go there for college? Because, again, you had plenty of options. You were one of the more recruited kids in the yeah. country. What were a few of the other schools that you considered going to before eventually choosing there? Yeah, sure. So um, I visited LSU. Um, I visited Wisconsin, Ohio State. Um, I was scheduled to visit uh, Florida and UCLA. So those are my top five. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, you know, after visiting Wisconsin, Wisconsin was great. Um, and I actually verbally committed, uh, to Wisconsin when I was there, uh, you know, straight to, uh, Barry Alvarez, you know, oh, wow. I, I went in his office his office is literally like the Godfather's office, you know, it was dimly lit, 
it was all wood and leather every, everywhere. And, you know, he was like the godfather, man. It's like going there and kissing the ring with that guy. But he was a good guy. You know, I had nothing against Barry Alvarez. But um, uh, after that, I visited uh, LSU. And uh, LSU was awesome. You know, it was, it, it, it's tremendous. You know, you go in that stadium, you're blown away. You've never, you've never seen anything like that when you're a 17-year-old kid. Right. You know, but ultimately I chose Illinois because I wanted my, my folks to be able to come see my games every week. You know, that that was, you know, they enjoyed that. My family enjoyed coming down and seeing my games. And Champaign was only two hours away from my home, you know, in Chicago. So that that was the ultimate reason. And also, you know, a big reason why I went to Illinois. My, both of my parents uh, went to Illinois. They, they both met there. So, you oh, know, wow. kind of carrying on the family tradition. Yep. That's a great. Those are great reasons right there. You redshirted for a year. Absolutely. Redshirt freshman. You started. You would play both right and left tackle positions at Illinois. You did that in the NFL as well. Did you always? Did you ever prefer one side to the other? Did it matter to you what side you were on? And I know you also played guard as well. Was there one position that you liked? I know you would play wherever you were asked to, but did you always prefer playing one position over the other? You know what? Not necessarily. You know, I, I was lucky to have NFL caliber coaches when I was in college. You know, Ron Turner was our head coach. And, you know, he just came from the Chicago Bears. And, you know, we had Harry Heastan, who was, you know, one of the regarded as, as the, one of the best line coaches in the country now. You know, so I had, you know, I, I kind of got that experience, you know, uh, from high level coaching, you know, when I was young. You know, and they certainly uh, impressed upon me that you have to be ready regardless. You know, you have to know multiple positions. You know, you you can't have a mentality where I just play this position and that's it. You know, and they instilled in, you know, I believe all of us, you know, the more you know, the more valuable you are, you know. So I learned that at an early age. And, you know, unfortunately, um, a lot of young folks don't experience that, you know, and don't get to have those type of teachers that I have. But, um, you know, I really didn't have a preference. I just wanted to play, man. I really did. You know, you know, my first year with the my second year with the Bills, you know, they, um, Gary Ostrowski was uh, released by the team. Great dude. And uh, they basically told me, hey, there's a right guard spot open. You know, I was like, shit, shucks, yeah. You know, I would <laughs> right. definitely Hell love yeah. to, I would definitely love to, uh, you know, have an opportunity. So, you know, I, you know, and that's, that's the mentality young people need to have. You know, wherever the opportunity is, man, you need to uh, adapt and, uh, uh, you know, adapt and overcome. You know, yeah, you really do. You never know where the opportunity is going to come. Right. Now, by the end of your college career, you had worked yourself into becoming a legit NFL prospect. What was that process like for you between the end of your college playing days and the NFL draft? Did it feel like a long process, a tough one, a stressful one? the workouts for other teams, interviews with other teams, stuff like that. What was that process like for you? Not, not necessarily, man. I actually, yeah, I'm proud of myself from being a, a good football player and a good human being, you know? So I, I, I always carried myself as a kind of an NFL player in college, you know? And my former teammates would tell you that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I didn't get into trouble, you know, I, I went about my work day, you know, pretty, uh, you know, with, with, pretty serious regard you know so i think i was ready for the opportunity now, certainly um you know when you when you get on that level of speed of the game is is tremendous you know and that's a adjustment period that you need to go through you know but just as far as um you know you know just being prepared for that level just as far as you know 
um, playbook and, you know, scheduling and all of that. I, I think I was prepared for that. I think Illinois did a very good job of preparing guys that, um, you know, played on the collegiate level that I got an opportunity to play in the NFL. That's why you see a lot of Illinois guys um, that played in the NFL. You know, we certainly haven't had the uh, wins and loss, loss, you know, the wins that we, uh, you know, wanted when we were in college. But I, I think a lot of us that have played on the NFL level would say, you know, they were pretty well adjusted when they got to the NFL. Yeah. So in the fifth round, 2001 NFL draft, the Buffalo Bills, they call, they take you. What do you remember from that exact moment when you got drafted? Where were you? Were you at home? Were you with friends, family? And did you have any indication before the draft that Buffalo may be where you would end up? Or was that a complete surprise to you? Yeah, I had no clue. I actually thought I was going to go to Jacksonville in the first round. (laughs) I really did. Either the first or second round, you know, they – um, Jacksonville, I forgot what pick that they had in the first round, but I, you know, they called me in the first round and, you know, basically expressed interest. And then the, when their pick came up in the first round, you know, the pick said, and now we'll see, I don't know, the six pick of the 15th pick of the NFL, Marcus. And then they said, Marcus Stroud <laughs> from Georgia. I was like, Oh man. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, they kept talking to me and I thought they would take me in the second round and they ended up taking the tackle, uh, you know, uh, Maurice Williams from uh, Michigan. And then I kind of just kept sliding down, man. You know, I really didn't know what the deal was. And I actually, um, <laughs> that this, the, the, the draft's first day, I was actually at a huge party for my family at my agent's house and I didn't get drafted the first day. And you know, I was kind of upset and down about that. So I just went back to, you know, you know where I was staying at the time. And, you know, I was kind of by myself and really, you know, was doubting my situation. And then, you know, lo and behold, they called me in the fifth round and said, hey, we're going to take in the fifth round. And I was literally by myself, you know, with a, with a couple friends at the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, it turned out, I'll yeah. tell you what, for that Bills, that 2001 class, that was a good class. Nate Clemens. Aaron Schobel, those are two Pro Bowl caliber defensive players. They had Travis Henry in that yeah. draft. Yourself, Jonas Jennings played a lot. Ron Ed- Ron Edwards. It turned out to be a good yep. draft, man. Was, that was a nice draft. Let me ask you this, man. When you first walk into the NFL locker room, okay, regardless of what team it was going to be, in this case it was the Buffalo Bills, you got veterans like Eric Bowles, Larry Centers, Phil Hansen, Pat Williams, a few other guys like that on the team. Is it a little intimidating for a rookie to walk into an NFL locker room at first? Was there an adjustment period of getting comfortable with yourself, or did you kind of feel like you fit in right away? Yeah, no, I, I really never experienced that, you know, when I was there. I, I thought all the vets, you know, treated me uh, with respect, and, you know, I, I don't, none of those guys were really on that with the with the hazing stuff, you know, especially like guys like Reuben Brown and Eric Moulds, and, you know, guys like that were really cool with us, you know, I think they understood that, you know, they, they understood that we're rookies and they were rookies at one point. So they certainly right. you know, didn't want to want to put us through hell. And ultimately those guys in the locker room wanted to win games, you know? So, you know, you make sure that those guys kind of, you know, they kind of took us under our, you know, under their wings, you know, I, I hung out with, you know, Eric and, and, uh, and, uh, Ruben quite a bit, Pat Williams, you know, all those older guys, you know, they were awesome. You know, yeah. good dudes. Let me ask you this, okay? So your second year on the team, 2002, Mike Williams is a rookie, the fourth overall pick, starts right away yeah. as a tackle as a rookie. 
unfortunately, and I don't blame necessarily all him, he becomes known as one of the team's all-time draft busts. Unfair or not, that's the label that he's got. And do you think maybe he felt there was a little too much pressure being drafted that high, fourth overall? It just didn't work out in Buffalo. Now, you got to spend time with Mike Williams, whereas a lot of us didn't. Yeah, sure. You know, it's easy for me to label somebody a bust. I didn't play in the league. You know what I'm saying? It's just the way it is. But with somebody like, what was he like as a person? Do you think that part of the problem was is just he, maybe he felt too much pressure being drafted that high? He was going to be the offensive line savior right away, and maybe that pressure got to him a little bit? Because he went to Washington, and he was all right after that. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, and I certainly enjoyed my time in Buffalo, and I respect, you know, um, everybody that I encountered with Buffalo, but – I really think they kind of pushed that guy into uh, a situation that he wasn't perhaps ready for. Right. Now, don't get me wrong. Mike was, you know, two set three seventy five, and you know six seven. You know, he looked every bit. You know, you know, didn't have you know fat on him. He was a pretty solid guy. Right. You know, and uh, you know he had all the tangibles, but you know mentally, I don't think he was ready yet. You know, uh, just to go in right away. I, I, and and the thing is. They didn't need Mike to start right away. They had guys there that could have started and kind of eased him into the situation. You know, so that was kind of the frustrating part, you know, especially with the older guys that were in that situation. You know, like, you know, yeah, you have this number four draft pick, but, I mean, you still have some veteran guys that can still perform. You know, you can get some, you know, get some you know, good mileage out of these guys. You know, you don't need this kid to come in and start, you know, so... But, I mean, they gave the guy a lot of money. Of course, they're going to make him play, you know. But I, I certainly don't think that was the right move. You know, I, I certainly think they could have, you know, kind of what they did with myself and Jonas, you know, kind of ease yeah. both of us into that situation. And, you know, both of us were starting by, you know, Jonas was, you know, started uh, you know, uh, a few games more than I did our rookie year. But, you know, they didn't throw him right into the fray. You know, but they did that with Mike. You know, I certainly think they could have done, you know, kind of um, uh, duplicated that method with uh, Mike Williams as well. But again, he was number four pick, and they're going to kind of get their money's worth right away. Yeah, <laughs> and you feel like that could be detrimental to an entire career playing someone before they're ready. I had Will Wolford on the show not too long ago, and he talked about kind of the same thing. He admitted as a rookie, he wasn't ready to start. But he, he ended up getting out, having to play guard because of injuries. Then he'll ultimately move on to tackle. And he turned out, obviously, to have a very good career. But he admitted that he wasn't ready. But somebody like Mike, again, doesn't matter how high he was picked, how much money he's getting paid. If you're not ready and you go out there and you get your ass kicked every week because you're not ready and you shouldn't be out there, that could definitely have a detrimental effect on your entire career. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, you know, that's something I certainly... Uh, I think the Bills have gotten a lot better with, you know, I, yeah. I think they're kind of understanding. They kind of need to develop their young people, um, you know, and kind of stick with them for a few years before they kind of let them go in and try to rebuild. Uh, again, I think uh, Sean McDermott is doing a great job of that. Um, you know, just getting the organization, organization to understand, hey, we need to develop these guys. These are what winning teams do. Right. You know, you just can't draft guys and expect them to come in and win football games and get you in the playoffs. You know, you need to develop the talent that you have in the building right now. You know, so I think they're doing a, a way better job with that. And I think that's why a lot of fans and a lot of former players are very optimistic about the, the Bills in the future. 
Let me ask you. So you're with the Buffalo Bills for three years. 2003, that's your last year in Buffalo. Lots of good players on that team, okay? Both sides of the ball. But the Bills, yeah, o- sure. the Bills only finished 6-10 and 10 that season, which given that roster, it was one of the more, if I'm being honest, one of the more disappointing seasons that I can remember as a lifelong Buffalo Bills fan. How frustrating was that season for you? You had to feel like you guys were a lot better than a 6-10 and 10 record would indicate. I mean, the offensive side of the ball, you got Drew Bledsoe, you got Travis Henry, you got Eric Bowles and Price, you got a decent offensive line. And on the defensive side of the ball, you got Williams, you got, you got Tequil Spikes, I believe, came in that year. You had London Fletcher. There was a lot of yeah. talent, but it just yeah. seemed like you guys couldn't put games together and to finish 6-10, and 10, that had to be, on a personal level for you too as a competitor, a very disappointing season. Yeah, it was, you know, and, and you know, 2000, 2003, I, I actually didn't start, you know, so that was very frustrating for me. They, you know, they had another right. uh, guy coming and start for me. And, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I certainly believe they kind of broke up the, the continuity of the offensive line. We were kind of gelling. I think we were one of the best young offensive line in the, in the entire NFL, you know, but, um, you know, and also, you know, they, they brought in all these stud defensive players. You know, it was certainly a, a disappointing year, you know. But um, I think the panic button was, was uh, struck a little too early. You know, we there was a disappointing year. We certainly, uh, you know, wanted a better year. But, you know, I, I think you just kind of needed to go back to the drawing board and, and kind of decide what worked and what didn't work. You know, I, I think there was perhaps a little... Uh, you know, more pressure on our organization, you know, especially uh, with the um, the uh, the Patriots being a burgeoning organization, you know, they started to really come, uh, you know, uh, you know, into the national uh, spotlight. Yeah. But, um, you know, in, in the 2004, you know, Greg Williams got fired and, you know, they kind of just aborted the whole program. Like, OK, we're just going to go ahead and rebuild. You know, we're going to, you know, do this. Uh, you know, you know, so um, I personally think that wasn't the right thing to do. You know, I think we had a tremendous core in place, and I think Greg was a uh, outstanding coach. You know, he was a, you know, a, a young head coach. That was his first co- head coaching right. uh, experience. And, you know, the thing about Greg, Greg was one of the most prepared individuals I've ever met in my life. I mean, Greg basically outlined every minute of the day uh, for the whole year. Um, a year ahead of time. I mean, the guy was meticulous, you know, with his planning. And I think that's why he's been so successful just as a defensive coordinator. But I mean, I, you know, I, I think Greg was a, was a great uh, head coach for me. You know, he allowed me to, to play and, you know, I always appreciate that. But I really think they didn't need to fire Greg uh, right away. And then they brought uh, Malarkey in and they only kept him there for a few years. Well, he he, well, he, he resigned. Quit on he quit. On yeah, him. he resigned. You know, so yeah, he quit. And then they brought Dick Duran in, and you know, so you know, it was just kind of a a cluster. You know what? I hear <laughs> you, you know, man. After the 2004 season. It yeah, was. You know. uh, I do, and as a fan, yeah. I'm telling you, that was one of the more during that entire playoff drought. I just remember that 2003 season more than any other. It just really sticks with me, especially considering. You guys kicked New England's ass opening week. You shut them out. You beat Jacksonville week two, yeah. start out 2-0. And, oh, and just things kind of fell apart from there. It was just really frustrating because that was a good team. Speaking of frustrating, all right, here, critics, bad fans out there, they're always taking shots at Buffalo. It's kind of easy to do because of the weather 
And, you know, sure. they, they had this long playoff draw where for 17 years they didn't make the playoffs. So Buffalo's easy pickings, especially on Twitter, by the way. Yeah, of course. Now, you recently told a story on Twitter about the Bills organization and how they handled your grandmother's death. I want you to recount that. But before that, let me read up the tweet here. Let me find it here. This is what sure. you said on Twitter. And Buffalo Rumblings, to their credit, just did a story, in fact, today about it. You said this, the Buffalo Bills organization, and this is you clapping back at critics, people who are always bashing Buffalo. You said, and you spoke yeah. out on the behalf, you said, Buffalo Bills organization really supported me when my grandmother died. They flew me to Chicago to attend the funeral on a Friday. I told them I still wanted to play in that week's game. So they flew me back late Saturday night into Houston to play on Sunday. It was a very emotional week for me and my family. I'm just lucky my grandmother got to see me play in the NFL before she passed. I love that woman very much. And I thank my Buffalo Bills teammates, coaches, and staff for helping me through that time in my life. Now, on a personal level, sure. obviously that means a lot to you for the organization to kind of help you out a little bit, which I'm sure was an incredibly emotional and tough time for you. You know, one of, you know, you just don't bond with your teammates. You know, there were so many awesome people in the building, you know, from, uh, you know, from the community relations standpoint to marketing, uh, you know, uh, Russ Brandon was the marketing coordinator back then, you know, you know, we got an opportunity to really, uh, you know, get to know him and, uh, Scott Burks told, uh, went to Illinois, you know, mm -hmm. so I, you know, we've always communicated. I always went to his office and kind of hung out and, you know, chatted with him a little bit and, you know, uh, Bud Carpenter, all those guys were good dudes, you know, man. So, you know, it just felt like a, a a very warm and inviting atmosphere for me. And I'm not saying that I've never experienced that before, but, you know, it was, uh, you know, it, it was impactful in my life as a young individual, you know, a young, uh, a young man, you know. So and I, I've always appreciate that. Um, and certainly I would have loved to play my entire career in Buffalo. That That would have been my dream, you know. Um, you know, my wife and I bought a home, uh, you know, when I signed my second contract, we were really, um, you know, starting to, you know, dig our roots into Buffalo. You know, we bought a town, uh, town home, uh, right in, uh, you know, the, the Harbor area, yeah. you know, right downtown. We, we kind of, you know, my wife's in real estate. We kind of understood that Buffalo was an up and coming city. You know, and, uh, you know, it was definitely frustrating to be released by the Bills, you know, going into my fourth year. But, you know, there's also things that you remember, the good thing, that, you know, that they did and, you know, things that they, you know, and that was a particular moment that I really felt that, um, you know, uh, yes, it's a business, you know, it can be cutthroat. But uh, uh, bottom line is I, I think they really care about their, uh, you know, their players. And th that's how I felt, you know, so I just wanted to express that, you know, when I saw that individual kind of bad mouthing, uh, you know, the, the city and the, in the organization. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of bills fans out there appreciate you taking up for Western New York. Last question here, man. And then we'll get to, we'll wrap up with the mini lightning round. What have you been up yeah, to sure. now? What have you been up to now in the years since you retired from the NFL? What are you up to today? So, you know, I did a lot of things, you know, from, uh, you know, working in uh, school systems. I worked for the government for, uh, you know, a couple of years. But the last six years, I've actually um, owned my own business. I own a uh, prep school, prep sports academy. So what we do is essentially take guys that have graduated high school and, you know, they perhaps need another year of development, uh, athletic, yep. academically. 
And, uh, you know, we kind of get them together. You know, they, they, they play a full uh, football season against college football teams. And, you know, we have an excellent coaching staff, you know, mostly comprised of former NFL players. And uh, we coach them up and we get them uh, into school. You know, we kind of use our relationships that we've garnered, uh, you know, over the last 25 years and, you know, call our contacts and try to get these kids into school. You know, so I'm happy to say we've got, We've gotten over a hundred kids uh, opportunities to to go to college over the last six years. So that's, that's what I've been doing. That's fantastic. For the last six, uh, six years, yeah. That's awesome, man. All right, so here's what we're gonna do: mini lighting round. Every guest, same deal. I'm just gonna ask you a, a bunch of random yeah. questions, <laughs> kind of rapid fire style. Not a lot of deep thought required. Whatever the first thing you can think of, that'll be your answer. You good? You ready? Yeah. All right, let's go. Toughest defensive lineman you've ever played against? Jason Taylor. Gun to your head, I'm sure you have many, but gun to your head, you can only pick one. Who's your favorite teammate ever? Ruben Brown. All right. I'm sure there were plenty, but what teammate was the funniest one in the locker room to you? Who made you laugh? Eric Moles. Eric Moles. <laughs> I even got a one, finish. One hundred percent. What's your favorite? Oh, God, yeah. What's your favorite non sports related activity to do? My, let's see. I'd say um, fishing. Okay, you've had an yeah. op- you've had an opportunity to go to a lot of cities. Between do you consider that a sport, though? Eh, nah, it's recreation. <laughs> There's more leisure to me. <laughs> I'm gonna allow fishing, man. I'm a, we're gonna allow that. You've been to a lot of cities, okay. obviously. If nothing else, just because of professional and college football. What's been your favorite city to go to? Your favorite city to visit? Ooh, let's see. I'd say. I'd say Miami. Okay. You got a favorite TV show? The Boondocks. Favorite sports movie ever? North Dallas 40. Okay. <laughs> that's a good one. That's an old man. I like that. All right. That, that's kind of a tie between North Dallas 40 and the remake of uh, The Longest Yard with Adam Sandler. It's kind of a tie between those two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> favorite singer or group? Favorite singer? Uh, well, it'll be rapper. It'll be Nas. <laughs> okay. So check it out, man. All right. You're at karaoke. You got a mic in your hand. And in this fantasy world, you're the best singer in the bar. Everyone's there to hear you sing. What's the one yeah. song you wish that you could totally rock out to that would have the crowd going on their feet all fired up? Name your signature karaoke song if you were the best singer in the bar. Well, that's kind of a two-tier question. So my favorite karaoke song is uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Under the Bridge. Okay. But if I have to have a theme music, if I have to have theme music, it would be uh, Dead Prez, Walk Like a Warrior. Okay. That's good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> name, name a TV game show, past or present, that you think you would be really good at, that you could dominate. TV show, past or present? Yeah. Any TV show or TV game show. Past or present? Something that you think you'd be good at? Oh, the love connection all day. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If we've spent a lot of time talking about football. If you had never played football in any capacity, or if you gave it a shot, it just it never worked out for you. If you never touched the football in your life, what do you think you would have wanted to do your high school self? I mean, in high school, I'm sure your goal was to be in the NFL. But let's just say you were terrible at football. What do you think your goal would have been in high school? Well, you know, that's funny because I've done that, you know, after I, um, 
you know, was done playing football, I went into uh, education, you know, so I, I wasn't a uh, full certified teacher, but I, I did work in a kind of substitute teacher capacity. I worked in, uh, you know, dean of students capacity, um, assistant dean of students, uh, school administration. It's always been working with kids, you know, so I'm kind of doing that right now. Okay. Now, I never thought I'd be, I never thought I would coach while I was playing, but I, I really fell in love with the profession because, it, again, it allows me to interact with young people and kind of share my experiences with them. You know, I've heard many people say that offensive linemen, by the way, make the best coaches just because they know the game better than anyone else. I've heard that many, many times. And as I think about it, I think it's more so because we have the most patience. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's true. I think that's more of the reason why people say that, you know, because we we certainly have to have patience uh, and and, and, uh, restraint to play offensive line. (laughs) All right. Second, last question here. If you had one person only, if Twitter were to send you a note and say, Marcus, we're taking away every person that you follow on Twitter, except for one, you can only have one Twitter handle, one person, and that's it. Who would be that one person on Twitter that you would have to follow? Oh gosh. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh man. Um, that's a tough one. That's a tough one, man. The, the the one I have to see every day, um, man, I I really don't know, man. I I you know, I, there's just so many I, I look towards. You know, I, I I have to say I have to say my own Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I was gonna say because otherwise you're gonna have to delete your account if you can't come I, up with. I really enjoy being on Twitter. <laughs> I really I really take pride in, in my Twitter account. I, I've just started getting on Twitter about uh, two and a half years ago, and uh, I, I really and I really get get, get kind of bummed out when you know some of my more clever tweets are not liked. You know, it's like, man, I thought that was funny as heck. Why are people not liking it anyway? (laughs) All right. Last question here. This one's not going to be any easier. Three dinner guests, any era, dead or alive, anyone in history. You could have three people at your dinner table tonight. A couple drinks, some good eats. Who you got? Oh, a couple drinks, eats. I would say, hmm, hmm, let's see. Um... I would really like to have a drink with Al Capone. Okay. I think that would be very interesting. Sure would. I would love to have I would love to have a meal with um um let's see. Um Miles Davis. Okay. I think he'd be a cool guy. Sure. Yep. And uh let's see. Gotta have a female on there. I'm trying to think. Uh past female. Uh let's see. Um Eartha Kitt, I think that would be pretty cool. I think that would be a, a cool, cool conversation between all of us. <laughs> yeah, I agree, man. All right, good stuff. Everyone, give Marcus a follow on Twitter at SIFU Sullivan. I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks, man. I'm sure Bills fans are glad to hear from you, especially love that story about your grandmother, you know, attached to, to Buffalo and just your feelings on Buffalo and the Bills and stuff like that. Really appreciate your time, man. No, I appreciate that. I'm sure everybody has a great grandma story. I was just happy to share it with folks. <laughs> All right. That interview with Marcus Sullivan was brought to you by our friends over at Pulse Cellular. Pulse Cellular was created to give a better option 
for everyone out there looking for premium wireless phone service for less cost with straightforward plans, no strings attached, no confusing fine print, none of that BS that you get with many of the so-called top carriers out there. Pulse has you covered nationwide in the United States with unlimited talk and text with premium, fast LTE data plans, hotspot coverage at no additional cost in all 50 states, as well as the Caribbean, Canada, and Mexico. Plans also include unlimited free Wi-Fi calls internationally when calling U.S. lines. There are no credit checks. There are no contracts. There are no overage costs. Again, like I said, no BS at all. Go visit PulseCellular.com. Go check out their rates, the plans, everything they have to offer. You'll find out for yourself that life is better with Pulse. And on that note, time for another segment of The Big Boy Theory. All right, here we go. Another installment of The Big Boy Theory. I am joined, as always, by Jeff Boyd from the 716 Sports Podcast, among many other ventures. What's going on, Jeff? How you doing, man? What's up? I'm good, Pat. Recovering from a long 4th of July holiday. Hope you enjoyed your, your holiday, enjoyed your trip up here as well. Yeah, I did, man. You know, I, I got up there for five days. It wasn't really pre-planned. I did flirt with both that last week, Thursday and Friday. I flirted with driving, which is a 20-hour drive for me. In fact, at one point, I, I think I put a picture on Twitter too. I actually had bags packed on my bed. That's how serious I was about driving. I just couldn't pull the trigger on at the end of the day, that 20 hour drive. I wouldn't have forgiven myself if something had happened to my kind of semi piece of shit car, but I did end up going on an airline Saturday morning. I found a really cheap rate. The price went down. So I didn't end up flying in for five days. Was going to do some podcasting when I was in Buffalo, but like an idiot, I packed a couple microphones and some wires, but I actually forgot my digital recorder. <laughs> so I didn't end up getting to do any interviews, any podcasting or anything last week in Buffalo. Wanted to hook up with you too. It didn't work out. I'm definitely going to have to get together with you. I'm going to be back in like three weeks. So we'll definitely hook up for a chat. Maybe we'll do a, a podcast segment, have a beer or something like that for sure. Oh yeah. Sounds good. I'm always, I'm always down for all of those things you mentioned. So yeah, if you're around to set me up. I'll tell you one thing I did do, which is pretty much every time I get to Buffalo now is I had a handful of new chicken wing spots. And to be completely honest with you, man, a couple of, uh, actually pretty much all of them were duds except for one, except for one. I had, uh, wings at the Dalmatia hotel in Riverside. You ever have wings there? I, I have the first time I ever heard of it was when you were talking about it. I've never been there and I've lived here my whole life. Really? Well, I'm not sure if it's old or new. I would bet that it's old because it's a, frankly, it's kind of a rundown dive bar type of place. And I had never heard of it either until recently, a couple people on Facebook suggested it to me. And then Joe Yurden from The Athletic, I got to give him the most props because he's the one who convinced me to go there when I was looking to get something to eat, some wings that day. I don't remember exactly what day it was last week. But anyway, so I go there and I don't go there alone. I go there with my wife and I also go there with my daughter who's 20, her boyfriend and my 16-year-old son. And let me say this, and this would be the one potential, I guess, downside of the Dalmatia Hotel. It's not a sit-down place. It's not a fancy place like uh, like the Lennox Grill. You're going there. You could tell when you walk in there. It's an old, like I said, an old rundown dive bar. It's a local bar. It's all locals. You go to the drink, man. You know what I'm saying? And then 
maybe get some wings on the side. But anyway, we treated it kind of like we were sitting there as a restaurant, five of us, three, or at least two of those five, I should say, are underage. So anyway, long story short, again, it's kind of intimidating when you walk in. If there's a downside, I would say that if you're not from the city and you're not used to those kind of areas, you might be intimidated and scared off by it. Like, I'm not saying like everyone's like this, but in Riverside, or not Riverside, but like Williamsville, Clarence, et cetera. If you're from that area and you've only hung out in areas, suburbs like that, you might be a little intimidated and worried about coming into a neighborhood like that. But anyway, so you get inside there and we got wings. We got 50 wings, actually, because there was five of us. I wanted to try five different kinds. Now, I always power rank my chicken wings. I think I'm up to like 40 now since I moved down here. And But the one thing I always do is take the medium wings at a place and then one signature. And in these, this case, the two that I scored were the mediums, which were fantastic. And I got Chevetta's, um Cajun. And oh, my God, absolutely incredible. We got five total. I don't remember the other ones, like garlic parm, um, Cajun barbecue, which was pretty good too. But the Chevetta's Cajun were just out of this world great. This place, out of all the places I've ranked, I'll tell you right now, is going into my top five of chicken wings that I've had. Just absolutely incredible. You would never suspect it at a place like this, which always seems to be the case. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's the little holes in the wall. And we're lucky up here to have such a good variety of chicken wing places. Like you go other places around the country, you have to find the one place that makes them halfway decent. But your corner pizzeria up here has good wings. We're very spoiled in that regards. Oh, no question about it, man. And you hit the nail perfectly right on the head. I've power ranked, had tried, whatever you want to call it, 40 different places in Western New York so far, just in the last couple of years since I moved to Florida, when I get back to Buffalo and a lot of these places that are only okay, average, maybe mediocre by Buffalo standards that maybe I only have like 25 or 30 in Buffalo. You bring that same place down to a place like Florida and they're easily going to be top three. I just feel like chicken wings, I don't want to say all food, but probably all food, but definitely chicken wings in Buffalo are just so taken for granted. But again, I'm going to give that place a little free publicity on this podcast, Dalmatia Hotel. And yes, Joe Yernan from The Athletic is the one who recommended it for me. But you know what? When this place gets more mainstream, I'm going to take the credit for it because I'm the one talking about it on this podcast right here. It's a real true debt in Autobahn North, which I've been talking about for months now. Those are the two places that I could truly say are not mainstream yet. So they're really, really big time hidden gems. I will, I will have to check it out now. You got me thinking about chicken wings while I'm sitting here. You know, food, so. All right, my bad. I'm sorry. I'm jealous. I'm back in Florida and you still get to be in Buffalo. But anyway, let's turn our attention to some Buffalo Sabres talk because contrary to what I thought was going to happen, where I thought they might be done or not, they did something pretty significant over the weekend. They signed Marcus Johansson, two years, $9 million total. It's a move that seems lauded around the league, certainly on Sabres Twitter. Positive feedback there with that signing. What's your take on the move? What do you think of him as a player? What little you may know about him right now at this time? And how do you think he's going to fit in with Buffalo? Well, it it strikes me first like a pretty low risk move for Buffalo. That's only two years. We talked on this on this podcast a couple of times ago about what Buffalo has done in free agency. And that's go out and had a lot of misses on guys. But part of that is because they locked all these guys like Oposo, Leno, Molson up to really long term contracts with Johansson. It's only two years. Four and a half million dollars a year. They have tons of cap space still, so really no negative there. Um, he's a guy who can fit somewhere on the second or third line. He's played some center in his career. He's probably going to play wing. I think he's more comfortable on the wing, at least is what I'm hearing. 
Um, but he's got a veteran presence. He was a key part of a couple of Washington Capitals teams before they really finally hit that cup run. But he was a key component of those teams in the early to mid 2010s who really started getting that momentum going, um, kind of became a cap casualty there. And since then, it's really been a story of him trying to stay healthy. He has had some concussion issues. He's had a hard time keeping himself on the ice after really having no issues in in Washington. So it becomes a question of can this guy be available to you for a full year? Because if he can, it's a really nice piece to have in your your top six or your top nine. Someone has a little more experience than a lot of the guys who's going to be playing around. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, let's play the guessing game right now. And let me preface this by saying I think things can and probably will change. I'm not saying that the Sabres are done adding any significant pieces to this lineup, but let's just say for the sake of discussion, as of right now, as of today, as we're recording this, that this is their opening night lineup, all right? And let's just say for the sake of discussion that they go top heavy with that first line, Eichel, Skinner, and Reinhardt, or maybe you could put Olofsson there, but let's just say Reinhardt for right now. Who do you think has the best chance of being on that second line or maybe that third line if we can get in that deep right now? You know, you keep hearing, we keep hearing top six forward. Well, if you take away Eichel, Skinner, and Reiner, that's definitely three of them. Where do you, who do you think's next up on, the, on that second line as of right now anyways? I think your second line, if you go very top heavy like that, your second line is Middlestat, Johansson, and... Uh, Victor Olofsson looking like a third, uh, your second line. And then your third line becomes guys like Rodriguez, Jimmy VC and Alex Nylander, or maybe a if you want to try to fit him into that role still. Um, second and third line depth is still definitely a question mark, but at least with VC and Johansson here now, it feels a little bit better. It feels like there's something there on the wing. At least, at least it's not just all retreads like it was last year. Yeah. And you also got sure you could potentially, be in that mix as well. Let me ask you this, okay? I said we go top-heavy on that first line. Would you do that? Do you like the thought of Michael Skinner and Reinhardt as his roster stands right now? I mean, again, if they add more talent, to they add another good forward, then it'll probably be easier to add that first line as opposed to right now. But as things stand right now, do you think that line is too top-heavy? It might be. Um, that's a really good line. Those are three players that like playing together. At least Jack likes playing with both Skinner and Reinhardt. I'm worried about putting Sam on that top line because I feel like he's clearly the second or third best player on this offense. And I would like to have him really come into his own as the quarterback, if you will, of that second line, whether it's at center, which I think he can go back to, or whether it's on the wing. I think if you put him on the second line and maybe create another difficult matchup for defenses, it can make the life of Jack Eichel, Jeff Skinner a little bit easier because if that, if that's your top line, that is the line your number one defenseman for the opposing team is going to play every single shift on sure. the road. And that makes it really difficult to get your scoring going. I've seen it. I'm not quite sure where it comes from. I don't know if it's from the team or just media and fans speculating, but I've also read a lot about Sam Reinhardt potentially going to center. Is that something that you would do? Do you think that's something that he could excel at being a second line center right now in the NHL? I think it's an hour another thing for him. He's on the end of a bridge contract looking to get his next big payday and solidify himself as a long-term cornerstone piece of this team. And at some point, it's got to be – we got to figure out exactly who Sam Reinhardt is. I don't think a lot of people, maybe not even people in the organization, know exactly what he is capable of at this point. But he just can't be the guy riding Jack Eichel's coattails on that wing and playing in the front of the net on the power play. He has to be able to develop a kind of role of his own on this team. 
I think that if he's ever going to be capable of doing it, now is the time to find out. And I, I like Sam. I think he's going to, I think there's still really something there that he can become a top player on this team. But if I don't want all my top players just to be Jack Eichel and two guys who play really well next to Jack Eichel, I want Sam to be that center, that second line guy, that cornerstone piece for another group of people. And then you can develop guys like Olafson or Nylander or Johansson, whoever around him. And if you have two good scoring lines, you know, that's a couple less games a year that your goaltender has to just bail you out left and right because you can actually hold your own in the offensive zone. Do you think there's a possibility that maybe, and I, I'm starting to agree with you, you're selling me on this, that maybe Ryan Hart being on that top line is too op, top heavy and that he shouldn't be on there. And let's just say, I mean, the natural reaction would be, okay, well, let's put Olafson there. Let's just say that maybe, do you think there's a chance that they try to take somebody like Sherry, give him another shot at the top line, or maybe, maybe Vessi, maybe they try to put him on that first line as well, which would leave a second line of Olafson. And then, you, like I said, you got Johansson, and I got Reinhardt in the mix, and then maybe that kind of takes a little pressure off Middlestat, who some people might think are that he's still not quite ready to be a second line, a top six center right now at this early stage of his career. And maybe he'd be better off on that third line. Do you think there's a, do you think there's potential for Buffalo to try to get, I'm not even potential because I'm sure it's going to happen at some point, but somebody like Sherry or maybe Bessie to, to try to put them on that first line with Jack and Jeff. I think they've proven in the past that they want to. I am curious to see what Ralph Kruger's approach to it is because last year Jack had every, I felt like every single Buffalo Sabre played on the wing with Jack Eichel at some point last season. Uh, but yeah, whether it's Sheary or Olafson or Nylander or VC or Evan Rodriguez at points, I think that you have to try to find someone else who fits a different role on there and can contribute, whether it's just winning puck battles in the corner and setting plays up for Eichel and Skinner, or someone else who's like Olafson who's got a big shot, can be another secondary scoring option on the other side. So you've got your playmaking center in Jack Eichel surrounded by two guys who can just fire the puck into the back of the net. I really did like what we saw from Olafson in his limited action up here last year, and he and Jack in a very short period of time seemed to develop a pretty good chemistry. So I would like to explore where that continues to go. But yeah, I think there's a, there's some options there, and they may not be the flashiest options. But if you're trying to build a roster, build a, li- a set of lines that are giving you the best chance to win, I think you might have to try a couple different guys. But I would hope that like an Olafson or a Sheary or a Nylander gets a good look at that spot. Instead of playing line matchmaker right now, let's just say that they don't make any more moves. Who's probably that odd guy out right now? Because let's just say all the guys we talked about are top nine guys, all right? Well, you mentioned Nylander as well, so that would actually be 10. And then if the fourth line, if they got Gergensen, maybe Akposo on that line, maybe Larson or, or Saboka, I mean, we probably shouldn't write him off quite yet. I mean, it would, we all assume they'd end up getting wave clear and end up in Rochester for the season. But I, you never know. You never know what Kruger's thinking right now. But there's a point, there's too many forwards, and that's as of right now, and that's without any more additions, which could still happen. Who do you see as the most likely the guy out? I'm I'm kind of having my doubts personally about Nylander and his role on this team, if he's got a future on this team. But it could be Akposo, it could be Larson. I, I know he hasn't signed yet. The assumption is that he's going to eventually be here, though. Who do you think might be the odd man out when this is all said and done? And I didn't even mention a guy like C.J. Smith either. Right, that's right where I was going with, going with that. There's some guys in C.J. Smith, Evan Rodriguez, Johan Larson, who are restricted free agents, but those guys haven't put pen to paper yet. They're not on this team right now, so I would think that those would be the first set of casualties. 
either Larson or Smith might be the first couple of guys who you would look at as you know, Larson's not even going for arbitration, but those guys who are in that kind of in between. And we, we've seen this time and time again during the slump with these Sabres, these kind of lost generations of players. Think about the Bailey and Baptiste era of the prospects and Brendan Gooley. I don't want to see Alex Nylander gone without him getting a real shot on this roster, a real like long-term stint to work at the NHL level, because I, there's something to be said for playing at the speed of the NHL game and not bouncing around back and forth between here and Rochester. I know that they want to develop these guys. That's what Jason Botterill wants to do. He wants to develop these players in Rochester. But I think at this point for Nylander, just keep him up here. Give him 30 games or whatever. Pick an arbitrary number. And if he's terrible for 30 games, then maybe you look to abandon ship. Right. But if you do what they've been doing with these guys, which is playing for two games, send him back down for 30 games, call him up for a game, he scores goals, send him back down for 10 games. No one benefits from this. And least of all the player who has to, I mean, I know it's not a long physical journey from Buffalo to Rochester, but the maybe the mental journey of wondering if you're ever going to get a chance to stick in the NHL. I don't know if Alex Nylander is anything more than a fourth or third line guy, but I think this team has questionable midline winger depth. And this is the time you can find out. Yeah. So when you look at the roster as it stands right now, and there's still a couple of months before the season, but as it stands right now, you got Miller, VC, Johansson, a new coach that needs to be added as well. Do you think that's enough to make a difference this season? I think Miller is a big piece on defense because, you know, we've wondered who's going to be your number one defender. I think it's eventually going to be Rasmus Dahlin, but, in the interim, you want a couple other guys, whether it's Montour or Miller, guy, basically guys who can make sure that Rasmus Ristolainen doesn't have to play 35 minutes a game is all I'm looking for at this point. And Miller's a nice piece. He wasn't available because he was bad. He was available because Las Vegas is in salary cap hell over there at this right. point. You have a very little for him, but statistically, and if you look into the analytics here for him, could be a really nice piece, whether he plays top pair, second pair, wherever he is. That one helps a lot. Outside of that, I think a lot of it does come down to Kruger and maybe not so much Johansson and VC, although it helps to have more depth who can play at an NHL level. I think it really comes down to some guys we've been talking about. Casey Middlestad, Alex Nylander, Victor Olofsson, these guys who are already here. Sam Reinhardt, too, for that matter, if you're looking at playing him as like a second-line center, second-line cornerstone player. we The pieces that Tim Murray started building, that Jason Botterill has picked up and continued to build with, they're here, for the most part, at least. Right. At some point, these players either have to become part of the solution or they're just going to kind of stand out as being part of the problem. There's not flashy free agent moves, which I'm a fan of, because they haven't worked out for this team. And I'll be curious to see if any of these teams that are out there giving these huge contracts, like San Jose is giving to Eric Carlson or any of these big deals, Duchesne, Panarin, Bobrovsky, if any of those teams are going to benefit from those. Buffalo has given themselves a chance to keep their money, sign guys like Darlene and Reinhardt down the road. But that only works if Reinhardt, Darlene, Olofsson, Nylander can contribute something because otherwise it's going to become the Jeff Skinner and Jack Eichel show all over again. And then we're going to be in the same place we were were this time last year. Yeah. Last Sabres thing here and then we'll move on. I saw Mike's show from GR at a Interesting poll on Twitter. He asked who was more likely to play in an opener for Buffalo. And the choices were Rasmus Rissalanian or uh, LaShawn McCoy. It was overwhelmingly 
McCoy, by the way, who won that. Do you buy that more specifically? Do you think Riso is going to get dealt before the summer's over? Hasn't as of right now. Rumors say that it could still happen, but the price would be pretty high. When it's all said and done and this season started, do you think Rasmus is still on the team? I think Rasmus is still on this team this year. I think if he was going to be moved, it would have happened by now. There was some, the beginning of free agency was a flashbang. There was the draft. Players were going left and right. Everything was happening. And now you kind of mentioned with the Johansson deal, everyone thought the Sabres were done. Well, there's a lot of players that are still kind of just hanging out there. Johansson was for a while. Guys like Ryan Dezingle, who played in Ottawa and Columbus last year. This next wave of guys, I feel like a lot of these teams are getting gun shy about what some of the top level free agents have been offered. And now these next wave of guys are coming in looking for, for their inflated adjusted numbers. I think the asking price for Ristolainen is high and it should stay reasonably high. There's no reason to just get rid of the guy and take pennies on the dollar. He's not a locker room issue. I think he's got fixable problems. Part of those problems are playing him far more minutes than he should be playing. Yes. He's probably a little bit overpaid, but if you look at him, look at his statistics when he's on the ice with guys like Marco Scandella, no one attacks Ristolainen when he's out there. Everyone just attacks the guy he's across the ice. from. Yeah. I think that Ristolainen can be protected and be a key contributor to this team. Maybe a guy like Colin Miller can find something with him. Maybe a coach in Kruger can come in here and help him with a little bit more of a system. I really do think, though, that Rasmus Ristolainen is a saber at least through the trade deadline next year. All right. We'll see what happens there. Before we get out of here, I got to talk a little bit of Seinfeld because I know you're a Seinfeld guy. We talked about this a few weeks ago. In fact, when we talked last, I was through the first three seasons, and now I'm up to about the halfway point of season seven, which overall, I don't think it's quite as good as seasons four, five, and six, which really turned out to be gold. In fact, when we first had a conversation, we talked about season three starting to hit the stride because seasons one and two were just, man, they're okay. I think four, five, and six were brilliant. Seven so far is all right. It's not bad, man. And I, to be fair, too, I could also be suffering a little bit from binge-watching fatigue because Sunday, we're taping this Monday night. Sunday, I literally watched the entire season six. 24 episodes, man, all in one day. I was doing around other stuff on my laptop on the couch, but I had that on all day and night. So I watched an entire season in one day. But I am a big, big fan of this show, and I could see why now. 20 some years later when I think in fact, wasn't it just this last week where it was like the 30th anniversary of the first episode? I believe that's what I yeah, said. Not so long ago. They had Seinfeld out at uh, the Mets game throwing the first pitch. Yeah. And I can understand why people were such fans of the show. Now it really was a concept that was ahead of its time. And where were a few now, because now if you say one or two, I might maybe be able to know what they are, but a few of your favorite episodes from your experience of watching Seinfeld. I got uh, the puppy shirt stands out to me significantly. I forget exactly where in the, the timeline of the show that one is. Puffy shirt one's a classic. That's season five. Um, that's on my list too. I loved it. That's a great one. Um, the soup Nazi episode. I don't know if that's one of my favorites, but it's just one that always stands out. That's one of those iconic TV episodes yeah. of any series at any time. Um, there's the one where George is te- um, teaching hitting to the Yankees. He's having like he's having his big brain he's become smarter by abandoning all, all things sexual during his tenure with the yankees <laughs> um then the uh, the summer of george is all is also another one of my one of my favorite ones where he tries to have his huge summer and things don't uh necessarily pan out as he planned <laughs> well i'll tell you man the soup nazi one 
was an episode that I was waiting forever. It was in season seven. I just saw it recently. Uh, it was funny, man. The no soup for you thing. Again, not even, I didn't watch the show before now, but I knew about the soup Nazi. I remember the no soup for you, how famous that line was. So I got to that point. And I thought it was really good. Also the one where Elaine can't dance. I haven't seen that yet. So that hasn't <laughs> come on yet. So I'm looking forward to that because I know I've seen that a million times, a video of, you know, that, anytime you make fun of on my list too, but I thought you were just a little bit shy of that. So I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to spoil it. I have not got in there yet. Another one on my list too was, uh, the seven from season seven where George names his, wants to name his baby seven, but he suggested it to someone else and they're going to name their baby seven and he loses his shit over that. And then also the last one I had on my list from season four was, uh, the contest. It was the title of the episode. It was about who can hold off masturbating for the longest. <laughs> so funny. I was, I was about to come back to that one. I forgot about that one. That was after the last time we talked about it. Um, there will be a nice payoff to that at some point down the road. So keep, keep, uh, keep paying attention to that when they come back to that. You know, I'm glad you said that because when we talked a couple weeks ago, and I think for the most part, I was right. I said, there's no real developing story arcs and I still feel that way. But at the same token, I'm, I'm learning now that the show does a really brilliant job of, they don't keep story arcs, but they reward people for watching all the shows. Like there's references to things from the past that continue to go on forward and characters that randomly occur out of nowhere. Like early in season seven. And I just noticed this. You remember Jerry Seinfeld, he robbed an old lady of a loaf of bread to try to get to George so he can put it back in the kitchen of his fiance's parents. And then like several, he tries to fish it up the window. Yeah. Yeah. And then several, yeah. Several episodes later, turns out, that old lady's a friend of Jerry's parents in Florida where he sees her again. And then she finally puts two and two together that it was him that did it. Like if you didn't watch the show, you wouldn't know that. Now certain shows you, you have to watch it because if you miss an episode, it's like, you don't know what's going on in the series anymore. That's not the case with Seinfeld, but they do a really good job of coming back to things kind of nonchalantly here and there. That's in fact, that's become one of my favorite things about the show. Right. And, and it's it's not like watching Stranger Things or something where if you miss an episode, you're confused on the plot. Right. Exactly. But what it is, it's more like it's more like how life is like you run into random people and you do random things. And sometimes you never think about it again other than tell your friends about the story. And sometimes you just bump into people and you you revisit that even in the show itself. You find like old teachers, old classmates, ex-girlfriends, things like that. And they just go and that's an episode looking back at what think what life was before in the show. And when the series starts to wrap up, it's a lot of that, too, looking back at characters and moments. That's kind of how they start building towards the end of the show. Yeah, and I love, like, some of the names. They like, Art Vandalay. I've heard that name throughout the series. Like, that's that might be my alias if I ever check into a hotel or something, and I don't. <laughs> All right, let me ask you this. This is going to be the last thing, and I'm going to let you go, man. I want to know. I put this on Twitter earlier this week. I want to know your Mount Rushmore of TV show theme songs. Like I said, I put it on Twitter. Got a lot of responses. I want to know yours. And remember, man, this is your list. It's not necessarily the four most commercially successful, popular theme songs in TV show history, but your Mount Rushmore of TV theme songs. What would you have? Right. So when you asked me this earlier, I just, I didn't want to think about it at all. I wanted to just like be prepared for it, but I didn't want to sit down and rank things. Just the things that came to my mind first when I thought about iconic TV theme shows. And the first one, maybe because we've talked about it so much, I think about the Seinfeld baseline. Yeah. That iconic intro. Uh, that one stands out to me a lot. I think Futurama, which is an animated show that I watch a lot. Um, that is a great intro. Got a lot of that uh, on Twitter. A lot of people said that. Yep. It's a great intro. Uh, for the same reason, the Simpsons theme song also. 
I can't, I can't think about that show without thinking about the intro into the couch gag and everything like that. And then one for me, um, outside of that, it's a Netflix original show, uh, Bojack Horseman, that I really enjoy the intro to, kind of a retro look back um, in the same kind of vein that I think a lot of people are going to say Stranger Things because of the 80s theme. Uh, but I, I really enjoy the catchiness of the Bojack theme. That's cool, man. I, I haven't seen that show and I have to check it out. Mine for me, I'm going old. I mean, I'm showing my age here, but all four of mine are from the mid to early 80s. My mom works more would be the, the theme from the Jeffersons. It would be different strokes. It would be the love boat as cheesy as that may be. I just always got stuck in my head and I always loved that song. And then my last one would be the theme from happy days. Again, I'm very partial to the eighties. Honorable mention. I love the theme from Kirby Your enthusiasm too. I love that music and also the facts of life that would have been on my, uh, honorary list as well. And I know shows and, and I know, you know, this too, like cheers, friends they had the most popular songs but again this wasn't a popularity contest and for me personally i just i wasn't a fan of those theme songs i actually kind of felt they were annoying to be honest with you yeah the, the friends the friends one doesn't bother me too much in a vacuum it's just how many places and times you've heard it like i've literally heard that played on the floor at like wedding receptions that one kind of transcends tv show theme the cheers one does does bug me a little bit i'll agree with you on that that one's a little little cliche and over the top so now the 716 Sports Podcast, you guys off this week? Yeah, we're, ta- we're taking a week off. Um, Justin, one of the other guys on the podcast, is actually in the middle of, and if anyone's listening and wants to check in on that, he does, uh, every year he's a part of the 11-day power play, uh, which is a charity hockey game that goes on every July up here in Buffalo, uh, where different people raise money to fund their shifts to play um, in a hockey game, and all the funds go to Roswell Park Cancer Institute, which is a big uh, research center here in uh, Orchard Park, New York, that is helping to try to find a cure for cancer. Uh, Justin's one of the original 40 guys, and he had a shift uh, earlier this afternoon here recording on a Monday night. Uh, So while he recovers from that, we're going to take a week off here, kind of starting to take probably a little more of a lackadaisical summer schedule, at least until football's back, then we'll get right back to the weekly grind. Yeah, for sure. And that 11-day power play is a is a great thing and an awesome cause as well. All right, everyone. So follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Boyd 716. Thanks for doing this again. As always, it's fun talking to you. And just as importantly, it's also informative talking to you, man. Talk to you again soon. All right, sounds good, Pat. Talk to you soon. All right. That is going to do it for another episode. Big thank you again. Marcus Sullivan, former Buffalo Bills offensive lineman. Good chat. Really good guy. That was a lot of fun. Also, thanks as well to my guy, Jeff Boyd. The big boy theory. Love talking hockey and TV and all kinds of stuff with Jeff. Love having him on the show. Guys, if you have not yet done so already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. When you subscribe, new episodes automatically get sent directly to your phone, your computer, your laptop, whatever you use literally within just seconds of the release of the episode. I usually have a new show every Tuesday and Friday. Don't forget to rate and review. I say it every week. It only takes a second to do that, and it really helps me continue to grow this podcast tremendously. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. You can also subscribe to our semi-new YouTube page. Just go on YouTube, type in Analytics Podcast, hit the subscribe button there, click that little bell next to it so you get notifications. I got highlight clips 
from current and past episodes up on there. Also, some original audio content from time to time as well. Last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Tamaran Tweets. I always have podcast announcements, guests, all kinds of stuff on there. So check that out. Thanks again for listening. I truly appreciate each and every single one of you. Again, not doing a show for a week. I really miss this a lot. So it's good to be back. And speaking of being back, I will be back with a new episode on Friday. We'll have plenty to talk about. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.